MSW Media. A violent mob of insurrectionists stormed the Capitol to prevent the peaceful transfer of power to President-elect Biden. How can everyone responsible for this terrorist attack be brought to justice? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend, Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Patty, I have to say, I don't even know how to begin this podcast. You know, just, it was not even a week ago, we recorded a podcast talking about Trump's pressure campaign on the Georgia Secretary of State. We knew that January 6th would be a big day. It was clear that Trump was trying to rile up his followers and supporters regarding that. But I didn't expect this. And I have to say, I was literally brought to tears this morning watching the officers getting beaten by a mob of white supremacist Trump supporters who wanted to kill uh, the vice president, the speaker of the House and other elected officials essentially engaged in a violent overthrow or, or takeover of our government. Renato, I was on the phone, uh, I think about a week or so um, before this happened, you know, and I was talking to a former state senator and we were talking about how we believe people were going to die. And and I had tweeted a little bit about it. You know, I was I was said, you know, there were a lot of counter protests in D.C. and in various places around the country. And I just tweeted out, look, just don't even try. Let them run rabid, wild to, you know, and let law enforcement do their jobs as safely as possible. Renato, to be honest with you, this was not exactly. I mean, I, I look, we were at the point where this could have been much, much worse. It was catastrophic, I believe, in many ways. Um, but this was this was what I thought. And this is I had a discussion this morning with a friend of mine who's a Republican. And I've been having, you know, a lot of them are, you know, really trying to come to grips with what they have believed and held on to for so long. You know, there are a lot of people who still to the last minute or continue to believe that as long as they get their policies and their agenda through Trump was still their candidate because he represented that. But we've been trying to tell them for years, you have this huge base of white nationalists and who ultimately were capable of doing what they did on Wednesday. And what I've told you every week, I think for, I don't know how long Renato is what we have been, you know, really, uh, 
needy for, I guess, is the best way to desiring is accountability and justice. And for anyone to say now that we have to unite with terrorists, that we have to unite with fascists, that we should just move on. I'm I'm not here for that. And I and I don't I don't you know, people are saying that it sounds inflammatory. Well, (laughs) you can't have your foot on our neck and expect us to just keep lying there. Anyway, I'm sorry for not. I I feel a lot of responsibility today because you have a lot of listeners who have a lot of questions, and I and I want to try to get to as many of them as possible. Well, and we will. We're not going to cut this short. Uh, one thing I will just say to our listeners: I, M- Michael Zeldin, felt so so strongly about this topic that he reached out to me and asked to be on the podcast to discuss this topic wow. and answer questions. So that's why he's our guest this week. Uh, just to preview that, but no, look, I I we're gonna. We'll record this for as long as it takes. But I I will just say, Patty, you know, you mentioned the problem of white nationalism. And I kind of of two minds about this. I mean, on the one hand, yes, there are it was shocking to see the images of these racist white supremacist pieces of crap in our nation's capital waving the Confederate battle flag, which is a symbol of the Ku Klux Klan adopted by a forest, you know, when he was leading the Ku Klux Klan, a symbol of white supremacy and hatred. And a lot of them displaying, whether it's through signs or through their statements, you know, racism, white supremacy, etc. And there's no question that that has been an element of the Trump coalition. But I have to say, I feel like this this attack went beyond that. In other words, it's easy to say, okay, there's these white supremacists over here and they are violent and they're terrorists and they're evil. And they are. I agree with all that. But what Trump managed to do is convince the the base of the Republican Party that the he won by an, a landslide. The election was stolen from him. And these people were in there, some of them not white supremacists, some of them, uh, people who were convinced that they needed to hang Mike, Han- Mike Pence by a gallows that they had erected outside of the Capitol in order to prevent him from stealing the election from Donald Trump. There's a whole level of craziness and insanity and evil. I, I don't know how you get beyond what, what I'm not saying it's more evil than white supremacy, but a whole different vein of evil that was part of this as well but there is complicit behavior because they've allowed the white nationalists to hijack so much of what they pretend to aspire to which is you know freedom and liberty and always wrapping themselves in the flag and and that's what i mean though is you know when we when we look at colin kaepernick kneeling the uh, silent demonstration of we are suffering People of color are suffering. Black men are suffering. And people who would tell, you know, just scream until they're red in the face. I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist. But I don't think it's OK. You know, that's disrespectful. People people die. It, but, but it was at its core, even those who would say they are not white nationalists got wrapped up in that. And it became very easy to continue every single step of the way to go along with, you know, and President Trump saying, you know, take him off of the field on a stretcher. And, you know, all the all the name calling, they, you know, allowed themselves to be hijacked by those who made it worse. Yes. Were there people who just thought that it was an unfair election? Because as uh, the professor from Harvard or Yale, I can't remember his name, said, if you tell big lies, Enough times where your followers 
feel inspired to go and attack our capital to beat people with the American flag. When you mentioned the police officer who we're now seeing video of him being attacked, they're at one point using the American flag to beat him with that pole. Then I don't understand how people are surprised that we're calling them fascists. They are. Yeah, I, I hear you. I, I will also say too, I mean, there's, there, there is, you know, you're saying a complicity with white nationalism. There's a complicity with this QAnon uh, garbage which is, you know, essentially they believe that all the Democrats are uh, child molesters and there's some secret cabal or whatever their, their bizarre beliefs are. Totally tolerated, promoted by many of Trump's close allies like General Flynn and others. Um, you know, he there is. But let's be real here. The complicity in this is not just Donald Trump. It's 100 plus members of the House who joined this bogus lawsuit in Texas trying to get. Uh, the election overturned, uh, you know, 100 plus House members and mem- and certain members of the Senate like Hawley and Cruz who were spreading lies about the election and, you know, doing this bogus decertification or you know, trying to block the certification, this whole effort. You know, there are many, many, many Republicans. I would say the only Republican that I would would give some credit to on this would be someone like Mitt Romney who voted to remove him from office because I think that's an action, not a word. Like that's a legitimately he did something. So I'll give him that. But so many of these people uh, encouraged Donald Trump, benefited from Donald Trump, uh, would say, oh, I didn't read his tweet today. Oh, I don't, you know, I don't follow his tweets. I don't know what he's saying. I don't know what he's doing. His words have consequences. And if you're not reading his tweet, Congressman, there are millions of people who are and are becoming radicalized. I know some of them. I've seen some of them with my own eyes, I'll tell you. And here we are seeing them. They Here they are in their full splendor and glory, marching into our Capitol and defiling it and scaring the crap out of people and almost killing more people than, than ended up dying here. In other words, it would have not, in my mind, been out of the question for members of Congress to have perished in this attack. It was very fortunate. The bravery of one, there was actually one black uh, Capitol Police officer who led the mob away from the Senate chamber, for example. Unbelievable bravery. One man against an army uh, to, to lead them away. So I, I just think that, you know, I, I, you know I, I have to say that, you know, to me, this is what had, has been wrought and what I see from, uh, you know, what I see from the Republicans is they're like Pontius Pilate uh, from the Bible, right? Who washes his hands uh, in in a, in a, a basin to, you know, cle- and this the blood is not on my hands, and that's what I think a lot of the Republicans are doing right now. Oh, oh, no doubt about it, and so swiftly turning it back on liberals and the idea that if we pursue justice then we are, you know, that basically the next time they attack, it'll be our fault. And it always has been. If Antifa and BLM hadn't stood up for injustice, this wouldn't have happened. It's all it's all the left's fault. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, for a while, for like a few hours, Patty, they were trying to convince us that the the people with the Trump flags uh, screaming and uh, trying to trying to attack Nancy Pelosi and defile her office were Antifa. Give me a break. I mean, that requires this level of Orwellian, like Soviet Union level BS uh, that, I, you know, that it, it's almost a level of chutzpah, right? They even try to 
convince us of that BS. But but Bernardo, it wasn't for the fir- first few hours. You know, for the first day when I was started, I mean, you know, I needed to express whatever I could and outrage, and also and also, you know, aware that, I, you know, I'm not necessarily somebody that people, you know, uh, consider a leader, but I have a following that I'm I'm very, uh, you know. I, I understand the role of, of making sure that they know that they're not alone. That's that's what I try to do, that their rage isn't, you know, because we're all so isolated, too. We have nowhere to go. We're in our homes. So, you know, sometimes we look to the people we admire to see, you know, how how are they feeling about this? How What's their take? And for the first day or two, you know, it was hard for me to find my legs, uh, but I, it was mostly rage. And no, there was no pushback from any of the crazies, none of the conservatives. Uh, or any of the people that generally pop their heads up and in the whataboutism and everything. But after about a day, uh, Renato, I'm still getting people who saying it's Antifa and BLM that were, you know, had infiltrated, that were part of this, that were the real instigators of this. And so that's not that's that wasn't just the first few hours that is continuing. Um, and I'm, you know, I also just to change a little bit of the direction. I also, you know, these videos of Lindsey Graham being yelled at in the airport and Trump, the Trump supporters flying home planes almost having to be re-diverted because they were causing, you know, chaos on the flights. You know, this is, I, I really am one of the people that thinks this is really just going to get worse in different ways. I don't think something like the, at the Capitol level, but I'm really concerned about the next few weeks and quite frankly, the next few years. Yeah. I, I am concerned about the future course of American history. You know, we've talked a lot, I think about the radical radicalization of the Trump base really since his defeat, I think that's a topic we've discussed multiple occasions, this dis- disinformation campaign and so on. I I don't know, you know, what, what's really going on here. I don't know what's going to happen with the Trump base now with, you know, if he, you know, you know, he is he's leaving office. He's blocked on Twitter and every other social media platform. Parlor's getting shut down. You've got but you have all these radicalized people who believe all sorts of falsehoods, millions of them still out there. And they're looking for somewhere to go. And what I hope is they don't go to somebody who is as evil as Donald Trump, but much more competent. I mean, if I had to say what my fear is, is that a Hawley type person actually gets some measure of control as a successor of this crew because somebody who's really savvy could do more evil with them and with their support than Trump ever did. And that's my fear. Okay, and I, I think there will be a lot of people that are drawn to that message because the infrastructure for the delivery system for those messages has been there since at least the 1960s. You know, when you, when you have this uh, consolidation of media, and with, and we're not just talking about Fox News, we're talking about radio stations where, you know, for a lot of rural areas, that's their source of, of information, whether it's, you know, because the same station that delivers your sermons, your mass, your daily, you know, uh, religion, religious message is also intertwined with, and I always say this as somebody, not only as a, as a former talk show host on traditional radio, but also somebody who's traveled across the country as a comedian. I spent, used to spend about 40 weeks out of the year. And, you know, I would be in places like North Dakota, South Dakota. I would talk about being Mexican on stage and like have people after the show in the nineties yelling at me about how my people are taking jobs away from local Mm -hmm. workers. Yeah. So this is not we're not this is he this isn't spontaneously erupt under Trump. He took a he took hold of the reins, 
and and really drove this into the ground. And now that you know they emboldened, as we've talked about for the last four years. Um, and and I I don't think that uh, this is going to be an easy path forward for anyone. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the hate the look hate and racism and all of these forces have been you know these evil forces have been there for a long time. I feel like technology has helped bring these people together, right? If you're uh, uh, you know if you're some racist in a small town, you know you may not find all the other racists around the around the country. Uh, I think that. Trump helped, uh, I wouldn't say legitimize these people, but make them feel like they could show their faces, right? Like Charlottesville and so forth. He, you know, I think he also brought together the these these folks with the traditional Republican sources of information and made it so that some of this stuff was getting amplified in traditional Republican outlets and draw, which drew people who are traditionally part of the Republican base to this garbage. And so... You know, I will say it's it's what is really needed right now. And I will I got to tell you, I've had so many conversations since this attack with members of Congress, with Democratic, you know, activists and people who are head of different groups. I mean, it's been a constant source of conversation about what should we do and so forth. And I've got to say that my take on it. And I'm so I'm glad that there will at least be an impeachment vote, although we can come to what what's going to happen after that. I, I do believe that re, that every Republican member of Congress needs to be on the record here. Do you stand with Trump still or not? And I, I want that vote. I want people now to be in a situation where they are going to have to be on the record repudiating this man uh, because it, we need to divorce him from the Republican Party because that that party needs to be rid of this can the cancer that is Donald Trump. I don't have faith that they will in enough numbers to really make a difference. I'm just I, I have no faith in the GOP. I don't. I, I they have benefited from this and you mentioned Charlottesville. That should have been the line. And we kept they kept moving the line. Well, you know, again, lowering the bar for liberty, for democracy. They kept doing it, and here we are. They stepped right over it. Yeah, I mean, no question. I mean, there, the, any bar, I mean, it was interesting to see, of course, for example, you know, folks like uh, uh, Senator Toomey now condemning Trump and having his comments thrown back at him all the times where he was saying that, uh, oh, I didn't see this tweet. Oh, I didn't, you know, whatever. All the stuff that he was doing, I mean, many of the Republicans denounced Trump as a demagogue and as unfit for office, even before things like the Access Hollywood tape or Charlottesville or the travel ban or other things, uh, separating children from their parents, a subject that you could tell it sticks in my crock because I bring it up quite a bit. I just think it's so evil. Um, so, uh, you know, they, they, they were there for all of it and stood by this guy. So it's very, very hard for them to off ramp now. But let me bring in, I got to bring in our guest, uh, Michael Zeldin. He, I knew Michael. We're a legal analyst together in CNN. He's, you've probably seen him on TV at some point or another. Uh, he held all sorts of senior positions in the Justice Department, including you know, being the chief of the Money Laundering and Asset Forfeiture Office, but he also has dealt with uh, violent crime as well. Um, he was also independent counsel uh, during the Clinton presidency uh, for a, uh, um, a matter. And then he also had been deputy chief counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives uh, as well. 
So he's had uh, various uh, levels of experience that I think make him a great guest for this topic. And like I said earlier, he volunteered to join us today, and I was happy to have his uh, voice uh, as part of this discussion. So let's bring in Michael Zeldin. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I have to say, Michael, uh, Patty and I have been venting a little bit uh, over the past few minutes. Uh, I I want to give you an opportunity to, to tell us your reaction uh, to this violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Well, it was just that, Renato. It was a violent insurrection that was pre-planned by the rioters long before they arrived in Washington. They were ginned up uh, by uh, Don Jr. and Giuliani, and then ultimately the president. And they arrived at the Capitol with what was their pre-intention to storm it. And unfortunately for the Capitol and, and the people who lost their lives most particularly, the police were not there in adequate force and they were able to overrun them and do what they did. It was a disaster on on all constitutional grounds, all criminal law grounds, and most particularly policing grounds. Yeah, I have to say, you know, we're we're going to talk a lot about legal liability here, and I'm certainly happy to do that. I've I've been fielding um, an insane number of questions on this topic uh, over the last few days, but it seems to me that there's something more profound that happened here which is that this was a day where there was uh, it was a, it was part of the process of the peaceful transfer transfer of power in this country and really for the first time in this nation's history we had the outgoing president try try not just through even legal means but through illegal means he was trying to incite others i think to try to put pressure to uh, have a to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, and we have these folks. You know, obviously they were deceived by Trump and his allies to believe that the election had been stolen. But their their intention was through some of them through murder and vi- other forms of violence to prevent the transfer of power to the next president. There's no question about that. They they were there to prevent the ouster, in their estimation, of the properly elected Donald Trump. And they came there armed uh, and ready to affect their their will. And it was no different in some sense than 1812, when the British invaded Washington and burned the Capitol. This was an outside force that attacked the Capitol. It, had, it was, Renato, in my estimation, what would have been like had Confederate troops broken through and um, arrived in in Washington, something that they were endeavoring to do throughout the entire Civil War with, uh, thankfully, no no success. But that's what it was. It was an external force, essentially, uh, endeavoring to undo um, an election. And um, I don't like to use words like coup and other things like that, but but to keep in power someone who was lawfully um, uh, unelected or lost lost the election. It's it's stunning, really. It's stunning. Yeah, it is. It, it will be a chapter remembered in American history. I mean, I find it, you know, I I, I find it to be more disturbing, more problematic than other attacks we've had in this country that have garnered uh, similar reaction. In other words, we had, you know, we've all lived through 
uh, the 9-11 attack, for example, which we had obviously a foreign terrorist group uh, attack symbols of our nation, like the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, obviously generated a massive reaction by the United States, united the country against them. Ultimately, we uh, decimated that that foreign terrorist organization and killed its leader. Um, and here we have domestic terrorists who, in my estimation, did something far worse because here they just they weren't just seeking to destroy. It's not like they blew up a, a, a room of the, you know, put a plant in a bomb, although they did plant bombs in the DNC and RNC uh, headquarters. But in addition to that, they were literally storming the Capitol in order to try to overturn our government and some, you know, to disrupt the activities of the United States government. To me, this 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 merits an even stronger response. And I think it will be remembered in history as a very dark moment uh, for the United States. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that I said it a moment ago, and I sell, I'll say it again, it reminds me of the, the Civil War in, in, in respect of you have a duly constituted government, which was the Union, um, and then you had this um, secession government, the, the Confederacy, and the secession government was trying to essentially undo the duly elected um, Union government, and they were fighting um, uh, uh, to achieve that. And uh, I, I see that very similar here, especially when you see those who were in the mob that attacked the Capitol wearing uh, Confederate flags and carrying Confederate flags and uh, all sorts of anti-Semitic and other anti-racist things. This was, you know, this was, you know, sort of a second civil war in some in some respect. And it brings us in some sense to. So what do you do? You know, you've had this attack by these um, this mob, and um, now you have to figure out how to hold them accountable. And um, there are a lot of different ways that we can talk about, and you'll ask the questions, but uh, they have to be held accountable. Everyone, every one of them, the insiders and the uh, perpetrators and the enablers. Well, and that, I think, is a really good overview of what we have to talk about today here, because I think there are different uh, in terms of legal liability, there are going to be very different. Those are very different categories. Um, inciting violence is a more challenging legal theory than actually bringing a case against someone who committed violence. Before we do that, I know Patty has some oh, there's all sorts of questions about this topic, Michael, that are even go beyond legal liability. Patty, what you had to think a question from one of our listeners. Right, because, you know, before we get into the legal aspect of this, of course, you know, we're talking about that this was pre-planned, as you mentioned, and, you know, many are saying that it wasn't. There are a lot of people who are going to say this wasn't pre-planned, this was just, you know, the momentum or the energy that got carried away, but if it was not a pre-planned coup, then why did 10 secretaries of defense send out that letter in the days leading up to the 6th? There seemed to be the sense that Trump was going to do more, or perhaps they did know. I mean, we're speculating, of course. No. And anyone who says that this was a spontaneous uprising is deceiving themselves. There were, if you followed the conversations on the internet among these people, You'll have you'll see that they are engaged in domestic terrorist conversations, and in fact, 
organizations like the Anti-Defamation League and others who follow uh, domestic terrorism were all sending letters of warning to the to government officials saying there is an insurrection coming. They're planning it. And when they got here, you can tell that they had pre-planned it because they were carrying walkie-talkies. They were organized. They had um, uh, cells, leaders. It wasn't, you know, a completely top-down um, command and control structured organization, but there were surely components of it, Proud Boys and others, that were well-organized and had pre-intention to do what they did. So anyone who thinks that this was just the spur of the moment um, is wrong. But if they were just the spur of the moment, then the question becomes, how can a peace-loving crowd like this get so riled up? And if the answer to it is they were riled up by the speakers, then they imply that those speakers should have criminal liability for inciting a riot. So which way do they want to have it? They either were they were peace-loving people who were incited um, by uh, Don Jr. and Giuliani and the president, who then will be held accountable for inciting, or they were pre-existing um, criminals who uh, carried out a well-executed plan, or maybe both. Yeah, I have to say, I also find it absurd, this idea that this was not pre-planned. You literally had people there, uh, you know, these the terrorists there with, like, restraints to, like, t- you know, to... To essentially a, a temporary a form of temporary handcuffs like they were like there to take hostages you don't just bring that to a protest i've been to plenty of protests it's not like you go to the women's march with your restraints and your you know body armor and so forth i mean these people were clearly ready for some sort of confrontation that's right and they even had it was uh, reported um locally here on the by the by the law enforcement authorities they had maps of the tunnels um, in, in the capital. So they were um, aware of how people move within the within the capital. And, and they were going to execute, I think, members of Congress if they could get their hands on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy how, how close that came. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, there's the, the video of literally one of the one of the Capitol Police officers leading the mob away from the Senate chamber, just in, kind of baiting them to go the wrong direction. I mean, they were very close within a minute of getting some of the members of Congress and senators and so forth. And God only knows uh, what it would have happened. Exactly. And if and if you look at how the um, Capitol Police officer who died, died, how he was murdered, do you know how uh, uh, what I read was that he was beaten with a fire extinguisher. So they 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 beat a Capitol Police officer to death. Um, that group of people had malice um, in their heart and um, uh, an intent to do that which they did to that um, poor 42-year-old police officer onto others is, is, my, is my sincere belief, which is, which is why, Renato, when we get to the criminal law part of it, there should be um, sort of no mercy for, for any of these people. Well, yeah, you're not going to get any argument uh, from me. I, I will say – yeah, this is, you know, I think a lot of people have been surprised. Uh, a lot of the civilians out there have been surprised by how foolish uh, this group was. Uh, it doesn't surprise me. I've prosecuted many uh, foolish criminals uh, in my day. Um, and, you know, we've got there's a lot of people already who are uh, being prosecuted. And I have to say, everyone who's part of this uh, episode, uh, I suspect, is going to face a very 
stiff penalty. Uh, they're going to get convictions and a stiff penalty unless there's some evidentiary problem. Exactly. And, you know, it makes me smile when you said you prosecuted a lot of stupid people. When I was a prosecutor, we used to always say when a defense attorney would walk into the office and say, well, you know, my my client, you, you would you presume him to be that stupid? And I said, look, if stupidity were a crime, I would add that as an additional count in my indictment. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've prosecuted. I, I don't want to get into all the stories, but I've prosecuted some really foolish people. Um, but, you know, that's and that's certainly what we have here. But I, one thing I will say is, of course, that the comedic element of some of these people does not detract from the evil in which they uh, perpetrated. And I think maybe let's just I think a good starting point, Michael, is. We, we use these words, insurrection, and people have used the word sedition and things like that. Can you help explain what some of these terms that people are throwing around uh, about this, uh, what, what, they, what they mean? Sure. So there are a batch of statutes, which I'll call like sort of the political crimes of this. If you look at the events, there are sort of property offenses, the destruction of property category offenses, then the disorder category offenses, the remaining on a federal building disorder. And then there are what I'm calling the – and what you just asked about was the what I call the political um, offenses, sedition, insurrection, domestic terrorism, inciting a riot. All of those statutes more or less boil down to whether or not the individual or – uh, in the cons- sedition conspiracy, a group of individuals had an intent to interfere with the the, the functions of of the government, the lawful functioning of the government. In in the sedition conspiracy statute, it says two or more people agree to delay the execution of any law of the United States by force. Um, or hindrance um, thereof, contrary to legal authority. In the rebellion statute, it says, whoever sets, incites, sets foot, or assists in any rebellion or insurrection against the United States or the laws um, thereof. Um, The domestic terrorism defines someone who is engaged in activity that is intended to influence or intimidate the the workings of um, the United States government. So all of these laws, Rado, involve uh, a, a criminal intent to interfere with the functioning, uh, the do- lawful functioning of our government. And there's no question but that um, the perpetrators of the event may well have um, violated these statutes by conspiring to illegally interfere with the counting of the votes um, for uh, the certification of the election. Where it's a little bit more complicated, and I'm not completely convinced that the statutes are that easily applied on the evidence that we presently have, and the evidence is still coming in, make no mistake that there is still stuff to be um, gathered through the internet um, about who said what to whom and how it was acted upon. But in respect to President Trump, his his son, uh, Michael Flynn, Giuliani, all of the speakers at the March to Save America, that was the March name of um, that they came down for before they stormed 
the Capitol. Those, the application of these statutes to them would require that they incited, essentially, or conspired with those um, criminal mob elements uh, to do this. And inciting and um, seditious um, conspiracy is complicated because in the context of political speech, there's a First Amendment aspect to it. And so if you think about this, um, here is a, 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 an egregious situation of uh, the president and, and his, and his um, allies yelling to a crowd of people that the election has been stolen and they should go down to um, Capitol Hill and um, uh, essentially protest their, um, their, their grievance. The one thing that we have to remember um, is that Trump um, did say in that speech that um, he says, I know everyone here will soon be marching to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make their voices heard. Now, he talks a lot about fighting for their rights and, you know, being strong and showing strength. But there is this peacefully and patriotically, um, ex, you know, having their voices be heard aspect, of it, which, you know, is a little bit um, a little bit um, complicating. So you have this First Amendment part of this. And one one looks at these types of laws, inciting and sedition, one has to remember how they've been used in the past and why they're so dangerous and why liberals um, and progressives should be very careful before they say, we want the expanded use of these statutes because we dislike Trump so much. Remember, these were the statutes that were used against the Chicago 7 in their anti-war um, protests in, in, in Chicago. These were the statutes that were used against Eugene Debs and the socialists as they protested the draft in World War I. These are statutes that are used against environmental activists, against the Puerto Rican uh, nationalists, against civil rights leaders, because many who were in power at the time of those insurrections or those protests, I shouldn't say insurrections, I take that word back, those um, proper protests were um, thought to be creating a, a clear and present danger to the United States, and they were charged with crimes for doing that. So you have to be careful, I think, to not let these um, statutes get um, too widely uh, used because they'll get used against you um, sooner or later. Yeah, and, and I guess – so what I would say is a, is a great overview, I think, of some of the issues here. I mean – just if I was going to break down the the categories for people, so everyone understands, you know, people who there's a lot of folks who just did things that are very straightforward here. In other words, if you are if you killed someone or you're involved in killing someone, you don't need me to tell you that you know you could be charged with murder or some lesser um, form of that type of crime. If you stole government property. It's not going to surprise you that there's a statute that criminalizes theft of government property. Okay, it's one I've charged many times. You know, it, trespassing is a misdemeanor. Just even being there, there as actually, I looked up because I was looking up statutes. I got asked by so many publications this week about what people could be charged. There's a statute that criminalizes entering government, federal government property, with the intent to disrupt the lawful functioning of the government. Yep, exactly right. Good. I, I, I. I... I represented I represented a 
an individual when I was a defense attorney, um, Beachy Wright, people can read the United States versus Beachy Wright decision. Beachy um, went into the into the uh, capital, into the crypt of the capital, that's a lower part of it, and destroyed um, a, a glass encased model of the, the capital because um, God told him to do it. And they charge him with the destruction of property and an improper entry and, and the like. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's not there's very straightforward crimes that don't implicate speech that all of those people that are there that were actually setting foot inside the Capitol as part of this insurrection can be charged with. So as those people get identified, I think they're going to get charged. That'd be my prediction. They're going to get charged with straightforward crimes like that because they're just straightforward to prove. And there's those people were clearly uh, there to disrupt the uh, lawful functioning of the government. I don't think any juror uh, would conclude otherwise. And uh, it's if you can prove they're there, I think they're all going to going to get convicted in statutes like that. Yeah, and you know, and 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 especially especially easy will be the weapons statutes, all the interstate transportation of a firearm, possession of a firearm without without a license. All those things are basic blocking and tackling. Um, for federal and state prosecutors, because there'll be both federal and state charges that are possibly um, available to prosecutors around the country. That's a great, a great, a great point, Michael. And one thing that folks should understand is, you know, you're, you're used to you've been listening to this podcast for a while. You're used to me talking about how hard it is to prove someone's intent and knowledge and how can we read their mind and so forth. The easy thing about these sort of statutes is you don't need that. In other words, Exhibit A is the defendant. He's here. You step an exhibit sticker on this guy's forehead. He walked into the Capitol. That's it. Or he was arrested with this gun. Or here's his video of him with the gun. That's it. He didn't have a license for the firearm. It's very, it's very straightforward. You don't need to prove a lot of times anything more than just what they did, which makes these statutes very straightforward. Right, they're status crimes essentially. You are, you are, as you just exactly said. If you're in the Capitol um, without authority to be there, if you remain in the Capitol without authority to be there, you committed a crime. If you possess a gun without um, a lawful intent, a license to to do that, no intention uh, is a aspect of that crime. It's just did he or didn't he? Yeah. So I think a lot of these folks can get charged with stuff like that. And I think prosecutors will do that. And then judges, just so everyone understands, federal judges can take into account all of the nature and circumstances of the offense when they pronounce the sentence. So in other words, somebody who entered into the Capitol because they wanted to protest uh, Supreme Court justice or something, that's one thing. Uh, Somebody who's entering the Capitol because they want to um, hang Mike Pence by the gallows or whatever— it's a totally different thing, and a judge is going to be able to consider that difference and take that into account during the sentencing phase. That's right. And in fact, what really offended me um, in the aftermath of the uh, the riot is, you know, Ari Fleischer. I think Ari Fleischer um, did some tweets, as, as did some of the other uh, members of Congress, trying to uh, sort of equate, for example, the 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 the. The marches, um, the women's march, and 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 the he's not our president inaugural march, as if those were somehow equivalent to this mob. You know, as I said, I take back that word that I, I used uh, earlier. There are lawful protests um, that you and I and many have been part of, and and that's what the First Amendment protects. And then there are mobs. 
um, who engage in um, criminal behavior. And that's what we saw uh, uh, in the uh, March to Save America. Mm-hmm. And, and and let me, I, I know Patty's got a couple questions from our uh, listeners. I want you uh, get us, give us one of those, uh, Patty. And those are, those are good questions. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, you just mentioned if somebody was inside the building and you can prove the intent of why they were there, but people have a lot of questions because of how massive the crowd was on the outside. Uh, did those who amassed on the Capitol steps and scaled the outside of the building, but perhaps didn't go inside, did they also break the law? And are there any efforts to identify and charge them? They probably did break the law. I, I expect that it is not lawful to scale the walls of the the um, capital, and I expect in the process of doing that, there's provable damage that was done uh, to those walls. I mean, they're going to scuff them if at a minimum, and and they're going to probably chip them um, in other respects. So I think that the fact that you're outside um, doesn't insulate you from uh, responsibility under the under the criminal laws. It um, those who are inside and you know using um, barricades to break down windows, those are going to be charged with more more serious crimes than those who are outside. But make no mistake, the area around the Capitol, and really around America these days, is um, under constant surveillance. There are, there are cameras everywhere. And I expect that the FBI are combing through that video um, footage and they're identifying people and they're going around and they're going to arrest them. I think this may be the largest manhunt in the history of the Department of Justice to find all of those people who were there who violated the laws of the United States. So this uh, plays into that as far as the damage on the property of the Capitol. Uh, you know, as we know, President Trump over the summer in response to the fights for ju- injustices across the country uh, signed an executive order, the Statues and Monuments Executive Order. How will that come into play? I was going to say, here's the funny thing about that. You know, Trump kept tweeting about, oh, everyone's going to get 10 years in prison for defacing our statues and monuments. All he was doing was citing an existing federal statute that was already on the books and carries a penalty of up to 10 years. And it's one it's one of the statutes along the lines that I was mentioning. In other words, if you enter a federal property or have any, you know, if you, you know, uh, do anything to federal property, that is that can that is can be a felony offense. If you damage knowingly damage federal property or if you're entering to disrupt the government. So that's that's all that is. And he made a big deal about it when it came to taking a statue down, because, of course, that was a dog whistle to these folks who loved Confederate generals, which he spent a lot of energy on. Uh, We know why he loves these people love Confederate generals, because they were traitors who betrayed our country to promote white supremacy. Um, But in any event, um, you know, that's all that was. So, yeah, the, the, the problem for. These folks is that unlike a random person who toppled the statue, there's there's no sympathetic argument you can make to a jury or to a judge in sentencing. And there's going to be a lot of energy, as Michael just mentioned, around identifying and prosecuting these folks. So let's one thing I think. So we've, we've kind of talked about all the people inside and I kind of feel like our listeners by now are like, yeah, we know all those people are going to prison. What we care about, what we want to know is what about all these other folks? And so let me. 
I'll, I'll give I'll, I'll kind of break down into a couple of buckets of people, right, who we're talking about. I mean, on the one hand, I, there are organizer planner people. In other words, we don't know who they are. OK, whether it's, it could be Rudy Giuliani or Lynn Wood or P, or Sidney Powell could have been involved or it could just be a lot of people whose names we don't know. But people who were not walking into the Capitol, but nonetheless were coordinating this behind the scenes in some way. I think that's one category of people. And then, of course, I think that group of people, there is a, a, a fairly clear path to criminal liability. And I'll, and I'll let you explain your thoughts on it before you go into mine, Michael. But then I think there's the other group, which is the people who are cheering from the sidelines and perhaps encouraging from the sidelines. Uh, and, you know, there's incitement can go into that bucket as well. I think that, as you, you were kind of alluding to earlier, Michael, that's the more challenging one because the First Amendment in this country offers such broad protections to speech. So maybe let's talk about that first category first. Uh, what do you? What about the people who weren't there? Maybe they didn't even come to D.C., but they were, you know, Giuliani might have been on a cell phone coordinating pieces of this or something like that. Okay, so uh, Giuliani, of course, was there, and he, he gave a speech that was um, uh, famous for the line that he said, we're going to have trial by combat. That was his line. And so if you're, if you're going to be looking at does – um, do any of the speakers at the at the rally have criminal liability? Uh, Giuliani, Michael, uh, Dan, uh, Don Jr. and Michael Flynn gave, you know, sort of the most incendiary um, speeches. But let's, so let's break down the, the that broad category that you just outlined into sort of two subcategories. There are the people who may not have shown up at the rally, but who were. I'll call them in the command and control uh, arm of this. Those who were uh, organizing the um, people to who were going to go uh, to to Washington. So there can be people who are part of uh, we called it a sedition conspiracy. You could be part of a conspiracy um, without having shown up at the event. Like you, we could you and I can conspire the three of us um patty you and i can conspire to to rob a bank and we all meet uh, uh we have a meeting of the minds that we're going to rob the bank and um we take the first step um in in furtherance of that we 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 buy a car as it turns out i can't make it down to the bank that day so you and patty go down there and and you rob the bank and and everyone is uh, uh, apprehended, all three of us would be charged with conspiracy to rob that bank. The fact that I didn't make it down there is not relevant to whether or not I was part of a conspiracy to rob a bank. And so if they don't show up at the rally, it doesn't insulate them from criminal liability if they were part of a conspiracy to engage in this in, in this criminal behavior. And so th- those are, I think, also pretty straightforward legal um, cases. They're not simple legal cases. Uh, conspiracy is never um, as simple as possession of a gun. Um, but those are people who I think can be can be charged. The hardest group is, are the uh, people who are just in, uh, well, in this, uh, in this category that we're talking about, the people who were the inciters, those who gave the, the you know, the, the speeches um, in front of the White House and told the 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 crowd to essentially to go down 
to the to the Capitol building. Those are the hardest, I think, for me, the hardest category of people to bring criminal um, charges against because you have to show an intent um, to 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 incite them to 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 do violence, and then there is the First Amendment right to um, speech and and. You you have a right to incendiary speech, you know, thankfully, in a sense. If you look at some of the speeches in the anti-war movement days, my youth, or in the civil rights days, um, there were some pretty incendiary speeches and, and good incendiary speeches. It's, the, you know, the John Lewis of good trouble. There are good incendiary speeches where people have to get riled up for criminal justice and equality and, and other uh, just causes. And you wouldn't want... Uh, situation where those people, as they were, uh, are, are are were chargeable with 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 inciting. Um, so that's the that's the problem here. We have to be very careful, as I said earlier, uh, in not applying laws um, and setting precedent in the application of laws simply because we don't like the actors. Because those laws, if they become sort of normalized in their use will ultimately become used against your friends. And uh, I'm very, very um, hesitant to give broad, ex- you know, expansive reading to sedition and inc- incitement um, statutes because I know how they have been used and I'm fearful how they will be used. Yeah, so I, to go back to that first uh, that first group, I do think, as you point out, there's some very easy – I don't say easy, but there are straightforward applications of of the law to charge them, and I think that's an important group because it's not you know who knows. I mean, Giuliani was there, but we don't know what he's saying on the phone. For all we know, he's there literally coordinating people walking in. You know, go toe to this chamber or that chamber. We don't know. There certainly could very well be people who were involved in a more coordinating, directing mode. Conspiracies one way. Now, the, the as you point out, Michael. More complicated than proving whether or not somebody entered a property or whether you had a gun or something, because you have to prove state of mind. Once again, is you have to prove was the did the person intend to be part of this effort? But let's say if somebody's you know got direct messages or instant messages or text messages or there's testimony or other things that show phone calls, phone records that show coordination with the people who are in the Capitol, uh, that could be very powerful evidence that could prove conspiracy. And then there's also aiding and abetting. I think that's important as well. One thing, by the way, for conspiracy, you actually have to know what's going on. In other words, people who just were trying to coordinate, let's say, a protest aren't necess- aren't really going to be held, can't be criminally held responsible for something that ensues unless they knew that something along those lines was going to happen. In other words, if they knew that the group was going to enter the Capitol, then a conspiracy to unlawfully enter government property, for example, could be. Uh, charge, but if they didn't know that, if they thought everyone was going to remain outside, then that's a different story. But also, as I mentioned, aiding and abetting. All you need for aiding and abetting is to know uh, uh, to know about the criminal activity and to help make it succeed in some way. So, if you knew that these folks were going to be uh, entering the Capitol and trying to disrupt the certification of the electoral votes, and you were giving them car rides or uh, financing. I know there's been some questions about, for example, uh, some conservative organizations. I know Justice Thomas's wife was involved in one. Allegedly, there's been some reports of that uh, about um, 
uh, you know, busy paying for people to get bussed down there. All of that's possibly chargeable if the people knew at the time that, that, that a particular federal statute was going to be violated by the individuals that they were aiding. So I think that's important. That's right. And, 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 and uh, in addition to aiding and abetting, there are lots of sort of accessory after the fact. There are lots of ways people can sort of join in to um, criminal liability if they weren't sort of there on on day one. I mean, you don't have to have been part of um, mine and Patty and your conspiracy to rob the bank from day one. You can join that conspiracy um, uh, later on. We, You guys in the bank, robbing the bank, and somebody, you know, says, hey, let me help. I will, you know, I know how to open the safe. I, I can do that. Then that person is, you know, has joined the conspiracy and uh, they weren't there from the beginning, but they have aided and abetted or uh, become an accessory uh, to it or a, a, a secondary co-conspirator. And so there are lots of different ways prosecutors have to uh, broaden the scope of who faces criminal liability for the acts inside and outside of the um, Capitol. Yeah. And then and then as to get to that last group, which I think is that's very important, this idea of incitement. So I, I do agree with you, Michael. It, just so everyone understands, there's there, th- this actually is, you know, been a big subject of uh, uh, legal, important legal decisions before the United States Supreme Court. There's a famous one uh, from the 60s. I think it may have been 68 Brandenburg versus Ohio. And essentially, the Supreme Court held that unless you're Im- you're trying to incite imminent lawless action, incitement to violence, essentially imminent violent lawless action, then it's not it's protected First Amendment speech. So I can you know give give some speech and say you know these people are evil and they need to be dealt with or you know vague terms like that. But unless I'm really unless you're trying to get people to enter the Capitol to hang Mike Pence, for example. That's different. But of course, there were people doing the latter and you can see them on video where they're like, let's go in there and make these people pay. Well, those people are clearly uh, that's not going to be protected speech. Those are more the director organizer types that we talked about earlier. But the issue is people who were giving a speech an hour earlier talking about, you know, a bunch of lies about the election getting stolen. Those are going to be in the problematic category. That's right, because the the Brandenburg decision and Brandenburg, remember, Brandenburg was a a, a Klansman who um, said some horrible things um, in in that in that speech and was was convicted under uh, the a state statute. Um, and the ACLU took the case of the Supreme Court and won um, on the argument that the First Amendment protects that sort of speech. Um, absent a call to, you know, you're on the uh, if you're on the podium and you're giving a speech and 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 you point to somebody in the crowd and you say, kill him, kill him, hang him, hang him, lynch him, lynch him, whatever, something like that, or attack, 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 then that moves from politically protected speech to uh, an incitement um, to cause cause harm and. Um, the closer in time the speech is to the illegal act, um, the easier it is to try to prove causation that the the words cause the deed. The further they are away from it, the more difficult it is to say that those words were words that incited um, the lawlessness. 
That's right. It's it's really the the term that's used, I think, in the Supreme Court decision is imminent. It has to be very soon thereafter. Uh, one thing I do want to say, though, which is important, is there right now is our draft articles of impeachment that have been circulating. And the one count is incitement to insurrection. And I will just say that the, the, these discussions that we're having don't really um, uh, you know, preclude an impeachment in, in this ground. Although I, certainly the Trump's defenders, I know Alan Dershowitz, in fact, was citing Brandenburg and so forth. So they'll use those arguments that this is protected First Amendment speech by Trump. But I don't really think that's going to preclude an impeachment, um, which is not uh, strictly legal. It's a, a really a political exercise by Congress. Yeah. So let, let's talk about impeachment because it's 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 you know going to be the 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 flavor of the day this 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 coming week. If we remember the first impeachment, there was a discussion about whether or not there has to be underlying criminal conduct for there to be an article of impeachment. Dershowitz, in that, um, in his defense, in the impeachment um, number one, we'll call it, argued that for a, for a conduct to be impeachable, for it to be a high crime and misdemeanor under the Constitution, it essentially requires an underlying crime. He was uh, in a minority in that point of view, but he adheres to the point of view that there there has to be an underlying crime for there to be a valid impeachable offense. Here he would say, I expect he will say, that because the language that Trump used was First Amendment protected, you cannot bring a criminal charge of sedition or in, in, in inciting a riot or some domestic terrorism. And therefore, you find yourself in the same situation as you found yourself the first time around, which is impeaching someone for a conduct which is not criminal in its in, in in its nature. And I think that will be the nature of of his defense. And um, I don't think it I think it is um, a minority view that it has to be a, a crime for it to be impeachable. But we, we will see that play out. But you're absolutely right, Renato, to say that when you look at the draft article of impeachment that's floating around, the conduct which they're charging him and there are two things which we can still talk about. Um, um, the first one is that he willfully made statements that encouraged and foreseeably resulted, meaning he had the intent. He willfully made statements that encouraged and was foreseeable that encouraged imminent lawless action at the Capitol. So he made willful statements that encouraged imminent lawless action at the Capitol. So th those are... Those are the Brandenburg words that he is making statements that encourages imminent, as you pointed out properly, imminent, immediate um, lawlessness. That's what they are charging him with. Dershowitz will say, yeah, but you can't charge because you can't charge him with a crime because it's First Amendment. You can't impeachment. You can't impeach him for it. That's where the that's where the legal debate is going to is going to lie in the in the trial in the, in the in the Senate. But there's nothing that prevents the House from bringing an article of impeachment alleging it. Because remember, we said all along throughout the impeachment uh, part one that an article of impeachment is essentially an indictment. It's just a charge. The House charges that Donald Trump willfully made statements that encouraged imminent lawless action. 
Now, the other thing um, that's interesting, and we haven't um, yet talked about it, is that in the draft article of impeachment here, there is the whole other you know, set of behaviors that relate to Trump's phone calls to the Georgia Secretary of State to find enough votes to overturn the Georgia presidential election results. And he his threat to the Secretary of State, Raffsenberger, Raffsenberger, um, criminal threat that if he uh, of if he failed to do so. So there's this whole other thing on the political side of this, unrelated to the Capitol, which is the president's um, phone call on January 2nd to the Georgia Secretary of State saying, essentially, find me votes to overturn this election. And there is a statute that makes that a crime. You cannot interfere with um, the right of um, citizens of a state to have a fair and honest election. And so there's a whole second set of um, behaviors that the president engaged in that uh, find their way into this draft article of impeachment and which also could be freestanding as a um, criminal offense. There is a there is a statute. Your listeners can look it up. Fifty two. They Just Google 52 USC 20511. And it's a criminal offense that makes it a crime to attempt to deprive the residents of a state of a fair and impartially conducted election. Um, and so Trump stands the prospect of being impeached for two things, the Capitol and the Georgia call. And then he also stands the possibility of um, being charged on the Georgia call alone. And there is no real First Amendment overlay um, to complicate that charge. Yeah, I think that that's a great analysis. Uh, I will just say more broadly about the issue of impeachment. Uh, Dershowitz has already made this the argument. He's already said it. He hasn't even formally been isn't formally representing Trump, but he's already making this argument publicly. I'll just say I think it's a, a bogus argument, uh, and I think I think you're kind to say it's a minority view. Um, you know, the if you look at prior impeachments, whether it's Nixon or Clinton, um, the House had, in, of different political parties have brought uh, charges that are not solely. Uh, you know, in the criminal code, uh, abuse of power and so forth, um, and have alleged things that you could not charge in a courtroom in the, in both instances. And the founders, when they created the provision of impeachment, were considering, frankly, I think something, things akin to this, like a president who is trying to unlawfully stay in power or, you know, in league with a foreign government or something like that, that wouldn't necessarily um, fit the four corners of a statute, but it's it's clearly the the case. It seems to me very hard for me to for there for for there to be a originalist argument that the criminal code as it exists in 2021 governs uh, what is impeachable or what's not impeachable. I, I find that to be a bogus argument, and from my from my perspective, um, I also would say that you know as you point out. Uh, uh, Representative Raskin and the others who are working on this article of impeachment were wise enough to anticipate the Brandenburg versus Ohio point and literally parrot the lines from this test so that the real question would be, I mean, if if it was uh, 
uh, speech that incited imminent lawless action, then it's it meets the Brandenburg test. It's not protected political speech. So really, there's going to be a factual argument. Ultimately, Dershowitz's argument boils down to arguing, well, it wasn't quite imminent or it wasn't quite incitement or whatever. Essentially, he's arguing, making factual arguments about uh, what Trump did or what resulted from it. And, you know, I don't know how, how compelling that's going to be to a jury of senators or not. I think they're going to be more focused on uh, po- their own political considerations as they were last time. Yeah. But let me just say one thing um, about um, Dershowitz, which is Alan is a, a, a true civil libertarian. He, he believes, um, as the ACLU does, in, in protecting First Amendment rights as broadly as possible. And he has a sincere belief, which I, I share in, in, in large measure, that people should not be charged with crime for making First Amendment protected speech. He, you know, he, he, he fits into the category of sort of Justice William O. Douglas and others who believed essentially in a, an absolute First Amendment right of, of speech. And um, so he comes to this from a long tradition of sort of American Civil Liberties Union styled um, First Amendment um, sincere beliefs. So, you know, one should be careful. I'm not saying at all that you said this, Renato, but I know he's going to be pilloried out there on the internet and and elsewhere but one has to understand that he comes to this from the standpoint of he would he would defend because he believes in the first amendment sincerely he would defend the right of people to march in skokie he would believe in the right of brandenburg the ku klux klan men to to give that that speech in ohio he believes in that right of 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 free speech and he doesn't have to like who the person is that's giving the speech. And I'll tell you, he doesn't like Trump. He doesn't like, he didn't, he wouldn't like Brandenburg. He certainly wouldn't like the Skokie marchers, but he will fight for their right to, to speak. So uh, I don't feel like I need to defend Alan Dershowitz. He is quite capable of defending himself, but I just want people to understand that that's the perspective from which he comes. He personally comes to this conversation. Well, I got to say, Michael, I disagree with you to an extent on that. I, I agree with you that there are many people who shared the perspective you just said. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the ACLU takes the position that you just said. In other words, that they're going to defend Trump, you know, defend tr- Trump on the issue of incitement because they care about the First Amendment. They care about the precedent it's going to set and so forth. And I have no doubt about your sincere beliefs. But I have personal uh, experience with Alan Dershowitz. I've re- I've interacted with him repeatedly throughout the Trump era. And I've become convinced that he is willfully deceiving the public. Uh, He often makes statements about the law that are deliberately uh, deceiving. Uh, And I think I have not been able to discern a common direction for them that indicates to me any kind of true belief other than a belief to get attention for himself. Uh, And he does appear. I mean, he told me privately he regretted voting for Obama uh, and I think he I think he I don't know whether he dislikes Trump or not. Let's just put it that way. I, I don't know what his views are towards Trump. I'm not going to put put uh, anything into his mind. But I feel confident saying that I think he doesn't believe everything he's been saying publicly. And I think some of the arguments he's made, I mean, he, he's you know, he he would attack Bob Mueller for things like saying that Mueller was in paneling a grand jury in D.C. to try to influence the jury pool, which is absurd. 
he was doing that because his ve- he had the venue was in D.C. Uh, it, it, you know, he was saying things that he knows better, in my opinion. And uh, I just find him at, at times not to be an honest, uh, honest player. That's my view on it. I was just only talking about the the his the the sincerity of his belief in the First Amendment. I'm not talking about all Mueller and and other and other things. And I'll, I'll... Uh, may I may I ask a question about the sincerity of both your and Dershowitz's uh, commitment to the First Amendment? The intention of which, my understanding is, you know, in the in the document is, you know, in response to the total total way of governing from the the British Empire, right? So. If it then is being used to protect those who are trying to be fascist, to be authoritarian, you know, what kind of protections do we all then have? Well, it, again, it, it, it's a complicated, you know, sort of philosophical question to say, I want to be able to limit the speech that I think is dangerous and allow the speech that I think isn't. And you ask yourself the question, who gets to arbitrate that? Who gets to decide what's good speech and what's bad speech? And I I can say as a person who considers themselves a, a political progressive, I can say that people in power have used bad speech arguments to prosecute people who are progressive way more then they've used it to progress to prosecute people who weren't. And so I'm just, you know, not able to, you know, sort of accept that broad use of these statutes. I'd rather let the sort of the free marketplace of ideas, let them, you know, sort of get their soapbox and let them talk on, on, on Twitter or, or elsewhere and let the, 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 weight of their arguments carry the day or 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 sink them i also just uh, i wanted to 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 react to that that patty what you said as well is that one thing i find what you're mentioning patty i mean your view is part of a big debate in first amendment law and in, in other words about hate speech in particular if you're giving speech that's espousing hate towards a particular group there have been laws that have been passed to ban hate speech. And there's a, a lot of debate legally over the constitutionality of those laws and where you should be able to draw the lines. Because obviously, if you have groups that have been subjugated, have been d- discriminated against, that have had systems that have been constructed to disadvantage them, and they speech that, that targets them has a, an impact that, 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 vi- that really undermines other pillars of our democracy – and yet we have the First Amendment, which the courts have read super broadly uh, to give a lot of protection to speech in a way that other countries don't have. OK, the, in Germany, you can't use a swastika, for example, uh, but or in the UK, there's they don't have that level of protection for 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 speech. But we have that here. So this is a big debate that has existed for decades. I learned about it when I was in law school 20 some years ago, and it's it still rages onward. Yeah, and 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 it's and it's not simple, and there isn't a right or a wrong answer. It depends on just sort of your view of society. Listen, there was in in everyone knows of this this um, notion of you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. That 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 is just too much. That it creates a clear and present danger, 
and and therefore it's not protected speech. So where did that concept come from? How did it come to be that Holmes, I think it was who um, fashioned it, um, come up with it? Well, my recollection is, and Renato, correct me if I'm wrong, or your listeners will correct us if we're wrong. My recollection of it is that they jailed the socialist Eugene Debs for a speech he made in Ohio, Canton, Ohio, where he said, um, where he spoke against the draft in World War One. He said, essentially, if you want us to go fight your wars, give us the vote to determine whether we want to fight in the, in this war. He was arrested and convicted, um, and his case went to the Supreme Court. And in, res- in, in upholding his conviction for that speech in Canton, Ohio, the court said his speaking against the draft created this clear and present danger, that it was akin to yelling fire in a crowded movie theater. Well, if that's the context in which it uh, found its origin, then I'm not real happy with that concept because Eugene Debs was giving a speech against the the draft in World War One, a speech that he had every right to give. And if that's criminal because it pre- because someone in government believes that it created a clear and present danger to the orderly function of our government, then God help us if that's that's something that we want to countenance. Okay, if I use one more thing, and I know I could do this all day with both of you, <laughs> is is so that even if the result is something like what happened on January 6th? Well, the, the argument would be the result would be a prosecuted, right? But I think you're right. I mean, I think you the danger is there. In other words, Patty... We have all these white nationalists in the United States. They're basically equivalent to the skinhead neo-Nazis that are banned in Germany. Those people are not allowed to march with their swastikas in Germany. They're not allowed to espouse certain views in Germany. They can be imprisoned merely for espousing the ideas. In the United States, you can't be imprisoned merely for espousing the idea. If you're a bunch of Nazis in Skokie, that was the reason that, that, uh, that Michael chose that. That was a very famous legal case. The, the ACLU defended them. Uh, you can march with your hoods and your swastikas and so forth. But once you violate some criminal statute for doing something, then we get, then we then we prosecute you at that point. It's not it's not it's not necessarily the right balance. No one's saying that it is. That's the the constitutional balance. or that's where it has been in the courts. Um and that's why that's the most fraught piece of it. So, I, I, by the way, for me, I am not endorsing any of this in terms of here's how the I this is the Renato crafting of the First Amendment law. I'm just telling you here's here's how it works, and you can get mad at the United States Supreme Court, uh, not at me, because I'm I'm not on it. That's right, and 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 but you will be. I expect you will. Oh, be. Okay. You're still you're still you're still young you're still young enough. But well. but so but but I think that's a that's a great point to make, which is. What we're trying to set forth here is the arguments that we will see play out over the course of the coming weeks and months as we analyze the behavior of Trump and the insiders and the um, what the prosecutors like to call the alligators, the one who who actually are doing the, 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 the criminal behavior. And the last group that we really haven't spoken about in terms of what, if any, political consequences should there be? And that's for those senators who sort of essentially gave comfort to the enemy, in my estimation, on the and on the the in in the floor of the Senate, Hawley and and Cruz in particular. And I think that those guys 
that there's no place in the Senate for those two men, that their behavior in essentially encouraging or at least accepting, encouraging in Hawley's place and, and, and at least at a minimum accepting in, in Cruz's place should disqualify them. And the Senate, if it had any sort of moral compass, would, would, would seek to um, disqualify them from service. Patty, I know we have a lot of questions. Uh, why don't you fire some of the? We have so many listener questions. Let's just, just, just start, just start feeding them to us because I know there's a lot. So, but let me just say, Patty, we're we're in the in the first hour of our three hour conversation, right? <laughs> I know. I, I and I apologize to any listeners who really wanted to have their question asked. I'm doing my best because this obviously people are they have concerns, they have questions, and they've been scared for a long time, and they want accountability and justice, which they feel has not been at all within our reach over the last four years. So let me start and, with... And so they, they Renato is, you know, experienced, uh, an experienced user of social media. I, I, I go to his Twitter page all the time to, to learn stuff. And I see with good reason, he's got hundreds of thousands of, of, of followers. I, who have abhorred Twitter and avoided it at, at, at all costs, have decided that maybe I should use it. So I think in the last two weeks, I did this at Michael Zeldin. I have, I think now 300 followers, which I think are mostly my family. Oh, but let, so, me make, let me make sure I'm so, following you. <laughs> no, but the point is that I'm happy, as I'm sure Renato is, because that's what he's been doing for years, to have people follow me and send me questions, and I'll try to to answer them uh, that way, too. I'll, I'll send you a document of all the ones I didn't get to. <laughs> okay, so it's just at Michael Zeldin. I'll try my best to, to live up to the great tradition that Renato has set for me. There you go. If you don't hear it here, go ahead and tweet at Michael. Uh, so we have Michael Zeldin. We have okay. I have a few. So, if the House gets impeachment underway per the Constitution, are pardons then not allowed in cases of impeachment? Obviously, there are a lot of pardoning questions coming up too. Right. So, um, there are so many things to talk about. The, the power of impeach the power of a pardon does not apply to impeachment. You cannot pardon an impeached person. You can pardon other things, but not impeachment. That's one of the um, exclusions from the presidential powers of of of, of pardon. Okay, uh, and can Trump pardon the seditious rioters who attempted the insurrection? Yes, mm-hmm. he can. All he can, the more those... reason to get him out. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, right, but yeah. that's right. I mean, if if he if he really wanted to give the middle finger, as they say, to 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 the country uh, on, on in his last hour. Of, of his presidency, he could pardon every single person that was arrested um, at at the at the Capitol, or so, could be arrested at the Capitol. So, for the timeline on that, then, is there any you know should people then withhold the charges, continue the investigation, and then file charges after he has because they the pardon is only for crimes already charged, right? Well, no, you can pardon for future crimes. So that's what happened with Nixon. Nixon was never charged and. Ford pardoned him. So, yeah, no, definitely, uh, uh, you know, the, the thing, though, is he has to identify the people. So in, if, you know, he, Trump can't just pardon everybody who was there without knowing their names. And that this was actually something when they had the draft Dodger pardons from Jimmy Carter, it came up. They actually had a commission, like, find everybody, get a list of names um, so that this way it wasn't just you know, a general pardon, so to speak. So 
So that that would be the only uh, the only limitation I could think of. Well, but let me just add let me just add one thing because I, I don't and I don't disagree with you <clears throat> mostly. Um, the pardon was intended, in my estimation, when it was put into the Constitution, to pardon people who were convicted of crimes and have shown um, a repentant um, side since then. That's sort of what the pardon office in in the Justice Department does. It looks at people who were charged with crimes and now deserve a pardon or having their sentence commuted because the sentence was so long. Renato says, and, and it's understood to be correct, that you can pardon somebody prospectively, not, not for, not, not, not for, a, like, I can't pardon someone for a crime that they haven't yet committed. But in the case of, of Ford, he pardoned Nixon, who was not yet charged with a crime, but was believed to have engaged in, in criminal behavior. So the Ford pardon stands for the proposition that you don't have to be formally charged with a crime, you just have to have done something that that's criminal. The thing that the, the why I say I that that's that's mostly correct, but why it may not be entirely correct, not because it's not because Renato or I are making a mistake, but nobody ever challenged the legality of the Ford pardon. They just accepted it and let it be. And so no court has ruled, to my knowledge, of the legality of this preemptive pardon. And so if Trump were to preemptively pardon somebody and a prosecutor said, you know what, I don't believe you have that power, then it would go to court and then we'd get a, a legal ruling on whether or not that's lawful. But until such time, because Ford did it to Nixon, we assume sort of the lawfulness of it. Do I have that right, Renato? Yeah, I I, I agree 100% with that. And you know, listeners might remember, if you haven't listened to this episode, a few episodes back, we had a professor who studied and written about uh, pardons, a law professor, and she talked about it. And I think that was sort of similarly where we came out. I think she thought it was lawful, but she noted it hadn't been tested by the courts. And who knows? I, you know, it is it's it's possible that he might not be able to. And leave it to Donald to give us the opportunity to find out. Um, so. <laughs> Um, some are also talking about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Can you expound on that? Sure. That's a, that's a, um, that is a section that enables uh, co- uh, the expulsion, Congress to expel members who are involved in rebellion against the United States government. Uh, it was, that was the 14th Amendment was one of those amendments that was passed after the United States Civil War. Uh, and the purpose of it was to keep out con- Confederate leaders who what they didn't want to have happen was a bunch of Confederate leaders to get, uh, you know, elected to the United States Senate and, and so forth and essentially have influence or potentially take over the government with their treasonous ways after the Civil War. And there's been some talk about using that to expel folks now. And I will just say I'm not an expert on that that section of the 14th Amendment, because frankly, it's never been used. It's not something that people typically uh, study or discuss, uh, but that's what it is. Um, I don't expect it to be used. And I say this partly just from because I uh, well, basically from everything I've seen and heard, including my discussions with several members, I think it's hard enough to get uh, the, the, the House and the Senate to just proceed normally with this impeachment 
and there's been talk of delay and so forth. I, I don't see them taking a more extraordinary step, which would be to expel members. And in, 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 in fact, in follow up of that, I think there have only been 15 members, 15 senators expelled um, by the Senate. And I think 14 of them were for seceding from the union and and going over to fight with the Confederacy. Well, wasn't that with uh, with Lincoln, where they would not recognize the results as well for his election? Well, and they got expelled. They yeah. got expelled just, because they seceded um, from the union, which, uh, you know, ironically allowed the Congress of 1861 to 1865 to be probably the most progressive Congress in the history of the United States, because all of those guys were not there to object. Exactly. And when they all came back, when they all came back after Reconstruction, they started objecting again, and and we haven't had progressive, we haven't had a progressive, um, you know, sort of Congress since. Could you could you explain to people who don't understand that the party of Lincoln was progressive and not okay? Anyway, that's another podcast. Go ahead, Renato. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say that that sounds about right. I will just say that, um, um, you know, in that. Um, in, in that circumstance, though, you know, th- these are folks who literally not only didn't recognize that Lincoln was the president, but they took up arms against the United States and rebelled and so forth. Here, Hawley and Cruz made procedural objections that they trumpeted on social media as some sort of grand gesture that was going to change anything. But no one under the rules, it was never going to change anything. And they had a right to make those objections under Senate rules. So it's not like they did something that by the book was improper in and of itself in the very narrow sense. That was part of that's part of the process that's outlined in the Senate rules and so forth. So they were just exercising their authority within the Senate rules. So I think I think that's that that's it's just unlikely to happen for a variety of reasons. Right. Whereas Hawley, Hawley may have, um, well, he's from Missouri, so I don't know what the, the, what the electorate of Missouri, and it'll be up to them ultimately to decide. But remember, it was Hawley who is famously photographed with a, a clenched fist in front of the Capitol, sort of encouraging those who would later come in and, and um, destroy the Capitol. He will say in his defense, I was just you know, sort of raising my fist in their right to be out there and, and protest with no anticipation that they would storm the Capitol. And so if I knew that, I would have never put my fist out there. But again, I think you have to have been an ostrich to not know why these people were coming and what their intentions were, because it was, as they say, hidden in plain view all over the internet about why they were, who they were, and why they were coming, and what their intention was. And and speaking of in plain view, a lot of folks have questions about Fox News, and is there any sort of legal recourse uh, when it comes to Fox's role in spreading so much of this hatred and vitriol? I, I don't think so. I, yeah. I, I think that they they they're a broadcaster. They're 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 broadcasting um, the 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 information, just like I don't think there is. You remember what Trump was trying to get rid of in this Section 230 debate, the the the, the fact that the Twitters and the, play, and, the, and the Facebooks and all these other platforms are protected from liability for that which is posted on their platform. Trump hates that because he wants, he's going to go to war with these guys in the remaining days of his, his presidency. 
Um, I think similarly that the 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 cable networks and the on-air networks they they are most likely um, protected. I don't know, Renato, if you can think of a circumstance where they they, they would have um, liability. Yeah. So, well, I'll just say a couple of things. First of all, uh, on the flip side of it, I will also just mention that I agree with the general thrust of what you said, Michael, and that also applies to the Twitters in the Amazons of the world who are shutting down Trump's uh, speech and the speech of his followers. In other words, you have no, you know, you have no right to speak on a private platform and they can select whatever speech they want. I think the only thing I would say is that I could potentially imagine some defamation suits or other types of suits along those lines, like we've seen from Dominion voting systems and so forth. You could potentially see that's one of the exceptions you know, potential exceptions to the First Amendment, but not really regarding, you know, incitement or anything along those lines. They're they're just a platform that's providing uh, people, whether it's Trump or or uh, or any of his followers to spread their views. And under the First Amendment, they have a right to do that. That's right. But but you're right to say and, and I didn't I didn't understand Patty's question to be asking about civil um, lawsuit. But there is, as you exactly say, Renato, there is a possibility if someone says something that's defamatory, um, whether it's a, a, a host of a, of a show or a guest on a show, they said something defamatory. The fact that they said it on a TV show doesn't insulate them from civil um, defamation uh, liability. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, a lot of conversation, and this is, again, another podcast, most likely for somebody else, is about the role, it seems, that some amongst the Capitol Police might have played. Now, we're all, all going off of video and our own interpretation, but if any of them are shown to have played a role, what is the likelihood of prosecution for officers who open the gates or wave them in? Uh, would federal prosecutors prosecutors at least consider? Well, that's hard. Um, you know, if, if you're going to charge a, a Capitol Police officer with um, moving a barricade so people can come in um, I think the police officer is going to have, you know, a viable defense as to what he was doing it for. For example, if his thought was, I've seen these um, mobsters down the hallway picking up these barricades and smashing people with it. My intention was to get that barricade out of their reach so they couldn't use it as a weapon. That's one category of, you know, sort of police officer. But if there's, I think, um, uh, proof, and I don't think there will be, but I think there's proof that any of the the Capitol Police officers um, conspired, going back to that word, with any of these um, um, mobsters that 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 came in. Then there could be um, conspiratorial liability. I, I just don't think you're going to find it. I think the biggest thing that we and we talked about it a little bit, and and we can come back and 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 have part two of this thing is. How in the world did it ever come to pass that there were inadequate police and barrier protections to keep this group at, um, you know, at an arm's reach from the Capitol building? Yeah, I, I think I have a similar reaction. I mean, what, what I would say, too, is I think a, a, another defense that would come up would be duress. In other words, the only reason I did what I did, like get out of their way and let them in, is because there's a mob of 100 plus people and they were going to kill me or hurt me in some way if I didn't. Uh, and, and so I think that would, you know, if you're talking about a sort of a criminal penalty, now some of them might face discipline or might lose their jobs or whatever. Who I don't know, 
you know, those are uh, really far afield from my expertise. But I will say, um, separate and apart from all of that, you know, there has been some suggestion, most notably by Jim Clyburn. You know, Jim Clyburn believes that it, it may be possible that there was an inside element to this job because he, you know, he mentioned that uh, the uh, protesters knew where his private workspace was and they went there instead of where his nameplate was. And Clyburn's convinced that they had inside information. Now, if there was somebody in the inside actively helping, as Michael said, you know, that's going to be like um, the uh, the example of the co-conspirators from earlier. The fact that they were on the inside uh, it, it is going to enhance their penalties, uh, not hurt them. Yeah, exactly. And and I think one thing that that bears emphasis in a, in analyzing uh, the liability of 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 uh, President Trump in in the inciting of a riot and and trying to figure out what his intent was and all that stuff. What what is interesting to me is you you see the video. I think it's the Lincoln Project that has a videotape of. Trump and Don Jr. and um, Chief of Staff Meadows and a woman who I don't didn't recognize watching the um, mobsters um, in the Capitol, and it takes two hours before Trump decides to stop it. And how does he stop it? He sends out it's like a, a video link where he says it's time to go home now. You're special people. I love you. Now, you know, of course, when the Black Lives Matter protesters were marching, he said, when the looting begins, the shooting begins. And, and in this case, he's saying, I love you. Uh, go home two hours after it starts. Now, one might, in, you know, add that as evidence of a state of mind and intent that he intended this to happen. He facilitated its, you know, on it, its going on by delaying um, uh, his response. And then there's a lot of conversation out there about how the D.C. government and Maryland government and Virginia government were all asking permission of Homeland Security to be able to send in troops to stop this. And it took a long time before they got permission because you can't send in the National Guard without permission um, from the federal government, and they didn't get it. And so there's going to be an interesting um, investigation into whether or not there was any, you know, sort of premeditation to delay the um, access to the National Guard to protect the Capitol or to um, put an end to the looting. And that, too, would be evidence that's usable in determining whether somebody has criminal liability. Yeah, Um and I think that's I think that is fair. I, I think let's do one more question from our listeners, Betty. I know we've been going for quite some time. I know. Okay. I thank you everybody for your questions, and I apologize if I didn't get to yours. And remember, you can also ask uh, Michael at Michael Zeldin. Uh, so, do you think a law getting rid of the Justice Department's memo saying a sitting president can't be indicted would help prevent Trump's behavior type of behavior in the future? <laughs> Hopefully, there won't be another Donald Trump. In, in in our in our future, um, but I think the truth of the matter is that suppose this happened um, two years ago. So Trump has two more years um, 
to uh, be in office. And um, it's clear that he incited a riot and that he's um, liable under the um, criminal laws of the United States. And it's a clear cut case that he he incited it and he and he uh, used the 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 uh, magic words and, and it was um, close enough in time that it was it met the imminent test. And so here it is, a clear criminal case to bring against him, and he's got two more years in present in the office. And then there's this Office of Legal Counsel memo that says a sitting president can't be indicted. Well, that's not law. That's just an advisory memo from the Office of Legal Counsel, which is sort of the think tank of the Justice Department, to the attorney general, advising the attorney general on what they think the lawfulness of that is. A prosecutor, theoretically, could say, you know what? I don't believe that memo to be correct, and I'm going to indict him anyway, and then he can try to, you know, interpose the defense of you can't indict a sitting president, and we'll battle that out, battle that out in the courts. But again, like with the Nixon pardon um, by by Ford, this question of whether you can indict a sitting president has never been litigated, and so it's a it's a theory, but it's not uh, been enshrined in law by the Supreme Court, and so. You know, it would exist as a possibility under the right circumstances. Well, yeah, let me say a couple things about it. First of all, um, I, Michael, I agree with what you said. Uh, and this is a, essentially a policy of the Justice Department. Um, and it doesn't really shouldn't surprise you that administrations in both parties take the view that a sitting president can't be indicted because the Justice Department is representing the you know the president and that administration. Uh, that's why you you see that in two different presidencies. Um, you know, from different parties reaching that conclusion. Now, a state prosecutor isn't bound by that, but federal prosecutors are supposed to follow DOJ policy. That can be a problem for them if they do not. They are that's what they are. They are they are supposed to be following that guidance. And I so I do see and understand the desire to overturn that. Uh, but I think the original question was whether a law could be passed to overturn it. And I'm not sure such a law would be constitutional. That would have to be litigated whether or not a law, a statute could constrain the charge, you know, the constitutional authority or lack thereof of the of the Justice Department. In other words, even if uh, certainly uh, even if um, uh, the a law said you can charge a sitting president and DOJ went ahead and charged the president. Uh, unlikely as that may be, given that attorney generals are appointed by the president, um, th- then you'd have a situation where a Supreme Court could say, no, you're wrong. Sitting presidents can't be indicted. Uh, and then that would invalidate that statute. So that, I don't think that statute entirely gets us out of the out of the problem, but it, it might, uh, you know, creates, it, it, it certainly uh, is one way of dealing with it. Right. But both under both scenarios, yours and mine, and I agree with you, um, all they do is they create um, a mechanism by which the theory that a sitting president can't be indicted is um, is challenged in court. Exactly right. Well, Michael, I I will tell you, this has been not easy. Um, Thank you for fielding all these questions. You were so prepared and had so many thoughts to share. Thank you, by the way, Patty. I don't usually thank you because you just do this all the time. But man, this is so much work this time. Uh, Sifting through everything. It was amazing. uh, The work that you put into organizing all of these. I hope listeners that we we got your questions. I will do my best uh, for the patrons to, to answer other ones. Uh, in in the in the groups and so forth, 
Um, but, uh, I, you know, thank you, Michael. Thank you for volunteering to do this. I'm sure uh, we'll have more questions for you in the future. Right. And what we should do is mark a, a, a spot on our calendar somewhere in February. <laughs> if we don't get if, if Trump doesn't resign, if, if there isn't. So the way this is going to play out is um, there's a hope that Trump will resign. Odds against that pretty strong. The 25th Amendment forces him out. Really not a very realistic scenario. Um, first, you have to get Mike Pence, and then he has a, a, a right to contest, and there's four days that you know he still gets to be acting president while they debate whether he's unsuited um, for the presidency, and then his presidency is over. And then there's this um, question of impeachment. And the last thing I wanted to say, Renato, is that your listeners should be aware of is that there is a there is a constitutional disagreement about whether a former president can be impeached. You know, when you think of a impeachment as something which removes the person from their office. And um, that's, you know, sort of normal. So you, when you ask the question, well, then how is it they're going to impeach him and um, convict him in the Senate and remove him when he's no longer president. And the, the theory here is that in the Constitution, there are two things. There's one, the uh, ability to convict and remove. And then there's a separate provision that says, upon conviction, the Senate can vote to ban you from your right to run for future political office. You're essentially disqualified from future office. And so the theory is that a former elected official can be impeached after they leave office in order to give effect to that constitutional provision that prevents them from running from to, for office again. Another thing that hasn't been tested in, in the courts and um, that's why I say let's mark a place in the calendar. If he gets impeached and there's going to be a, a trial in the Senate of a former president, we have to figure out whether or not um, what what uh, defenses and, and rights um, will apply. And that'll be spectacular um, legal um, conversation. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Well, thanks again, Michael. Thank you, Patty. Thank you. It was an extraordinary conversation. Thank you both. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. Topic.